Season 4 Beyond the Plate is presented by Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. Martin's was founded in the heart of Pennsylvania Dutch country in 1955. They are the number one branded hamburger bun in America, and as I like to say, they can make almost any burger taste better. Got to give another big shout out to Martin's as I was cruising through uh, LaGuardia Airport on my way back from New York to Chicago the other day. Popped into the Shake Shack, which I did not know existed at the United Terminal because I don't usually fly United. Anyway, Shake Shack saves the day with having good quality food at the airport. No offense, airports. I know there's great food now. Also, another big shout out to Pig Beach in New York for winning the Burger Bash, the 2019 New York City Wine and Food Festival Burger Bash. Those guys are diehard Martins fans. I was so happy to learn that as I was talking to them in our bonus episode with Martins a few weeks ago. If you missed that, check it out. Anyhow, beyond the deliciousness that is Martins, here's what else I love about them. They believe in giving back to their community. What a great thing. They support hundreds of charitable organizations, food banks, after-school programs, disaster relief, and plenty more. Um, To learn more about Martins, please visit their website at potatorolls.com or follow them on social media at potatorolls. To all the fine people at Martins, we thank you. There was like all these split second thoughts that happened. Literally all of this happened within like a half of a second where you're like, what is a restaurant? What does it mean to be a responsible restaurant? Mm. But what is a restaurant itself is something that's super materialistic that only certain people can afford to experience. So how do you give a restaurant more meaning and have a deeper kind of voice than just people paying money and you serving food and wine? And like how do you, what does a restaurant look like if you factor all that into the equation? Welcome to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey with food and their passion for giving back. I'm Cappy, and in this week's episode, we sit with a very special human. He is Chef Matt Orlando. Matt is the head chef and owner of a mass restaurant in Copenhagen. He also has a brewery concept called Broaden and Build. If you don't know Matt, I highly encourage you to look him up, check out some of his talks he's done about his commitment to his restaurants and the earth. Matt's originally from California, but he's worked in some of the best restaurants for some of the best chefs around the world. Uh, Charlie Palmer at Oriole in New York, La Bernadette in New York, The Fat Duck in England. Um, that's where he met Rene Redzepi. He later went to Noma in Copenhagen to work. Back to New York to be the sous chef at Thomas Keller's Per Se. Back to Noma because he was the first chef de cuisine there. Anyway, this guy's resume is insane, as you heard. But he left Noma. He built, uh, as he calls his dream project, called a mass. It's on the waterfront in a former industrial area in Copenhagen. I've heard incredible things, and it's on my bucket list to get out to one day. This is a restaurant that has proven that modern day gastronomy and hospitality can go hand in hand with commitment to being responsible and sustainability. And he talks about sustainability in this episode. His restaurant was organically certified in 2016, ensuring 90 to 100% of the food and beverage served at a mass are organic and free of pesticides. This guy seeks inspiration using byproducts in his kitchen. Think food waste, that big buzz term here now. 
you're going to hear some super incredible things that he does with byproducts. Earlier this year, he opened another dream project after a mass just across the street, I believe. It's called Broaden and Build. It's a craft brewery. It's a casual restaurant. He operates under the same mindset as a mass uh, while trying to create a symbiotic relationship between beer and food brewed and served on site. Anyhow, uh, this guy gives back. His whole team gives back. He has staffers who insert themselves into local food banks to help with operations. They don't just go and give food. They don't just help serve people. They actually get deep involved in the operations with some of their food banks. Really cool stuff. Has a neat program called the Mass Green Kids program. I think you'll enjoy hearing about this. You still need to listen to this interview, even though I got really excited to tell you everything about Chef Matt Orlando. So please enjoy this conversation as we go beyond the plate with Chef Matt Orlando. All right. Well, thanks again for for sitting down. I guess I tracked you down through former guest of the podcast, Dan Juicy, yeah. Big D. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you a nickname. He was throwing us under the bus with our nicknames, which where's Sling come from? <laughs> okay. uh, oh, man. I got to dig deep for where that one came from. <laughs> is that like a, is that like a widespread uh, nickname or is that like something no, he calls? Oh, that's his. That's his. Oh. No, not one other person on the planet Earth calls really? me Sling. Yeah. So funny. But, you know, actually I was, I, I obviously know of you and what you've accomplished. And when I mentioned, I work with Rachel Ray full time, who's been to, I think to the brewery, right? To the oh, she's been to a mass numerous times. Yeah. Yeah. It was she, every time, I think I mentioned her like three times and she's like, oh no, you have, you can't do this. You have your interview with Matt and I ate his chicken. You know, <laughs> she, she loves talking about that chicken that she had, but. Yeah, they came, they came to the brewery the last time they were there. Okay. We just dominated them with fried chicken. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. The fried chicken sounds real good. All right. So let's start. Early on, you grew up in California, San Diego, San Diego, North County. Awesome. So tell me about like, what was like Little Matt Orlando like? Little Matt Orlando. Little Matt Orlando surfed as much as possible and did everything else as little as possible. What, so what, from what age did you start surfing? Oh, eight. I would say, yeah. And then, then I found snowboarding and then that became an obsession and actually I moved to Lake Tahoe right after high school and and just snowboarded 230 days a year really just, yeah did you go to school out there or you just moved out there I and, just moved out there to snowboard did you go to college um I started to I thought I should thought I should take some classes while I was in Tahoe yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then I ended up moving down to Santa Barbara because it's really good skateboarding down in Santa Barbara. That's where I got married, by the way. Really? Yeah. Nice. My father-in-law used to live out there. So. Cool. Yeah. My and uncle live in Montecito now. Yeah. Yeah. That's where so my So we still, we pop in there once a year to see them. But yeah, then I, and I went to the city college in Santa Barbara and then moved back down to San Diego. But I was working in restaurants this whole time. Oh, you were? Yeah. And yeah. so you, I mean, you worked in, did you work in restaurants in San Diego growing up? Like yeah, growing I mean, up? my first restaurant was at Olio's Pizza at 14 years old. Like making pizzas? And this, to this day, it's the best pizza I've ever had. Really? This place was, it was, uh, the owners were really good friends with my parents. Okay. So they gave me a job before I should have been able to have a job. Right. And then I got that job because my dad said, if you save up enough money, I'll match it so you can buy a car when you turn 16. So I saved up all this money. I was 
And then I went to him. It's like, okay, dad, I got, I got $5,000. I got this. There's a sick Toyota four by four. It's like 9,000. He goes, $5,000. That's plenty to buy a car with. (laughs) (laughs) So I ended up getting a four by four Subaru station wagon. That's so funny. Like, wait, what happened to that deal? Yeah. So did did you cook at all from a young age? Like Uh, before your first job at 14? I think my mom always cooked dinner for us. She went to, she She did. Always. Oh, we always sat down as family to have dinner every night. And that was like a, from when, until I, pretty much left the house like family dinner like yeah. family dinners every night every night did you help her in the kitchen i mean did you I, have interest at that point or no I, I didn't i don't i didn't think i did like i don't remember having interest yeah. at that point but my my mom says i was obsessed with cooking shows yeah martha stewart in uh really in particular yeah that's really interesting but i, I have no recollection of that wow Just, so do you remember the first thing you cooked or did you not really cook until the pizza job. I remember the one thing I remember cooking in the morning with my dad. My dad, if we had spaghetti the night before, he had this thing. He used to. It was called spaghetti and eggs. And he would take the spaghetti, put it down in the in the saute pan, and just roast it till the whole bottom got super crispy. And then just crack eggs into it and just let it cook and then flip it. And you had this like crispy spaghetti egg thing in the morning. That's funny. Rachel has a similar memory of that with her grandfather. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> used to do that spaghetti pie, I think she calls it. Yeah. So give us like a, a, a quick, well, not that quick because you've been around the world with at some great restaurants, like overview, like take us on your culinary journey from, I guess you were in, Ta- so you were in Tahoe until how old? I was about 20, I was in Lake Tahoe for, I mean, I literally left right after I graduated high school, okay. which right there. I was there for about two years. Okay. And you were skiing and, and working yeah. in restaurants yeah. your time there. Yeah. Exactly. And then at what point, so what, what, where did you go from Tahoe? Uh, Santa Barbara. So I was, I was lucky enough to, in San Diego, after I worked at the pizza place, I worked at a place called Chart House, which was like back in the, back in the nineties, it was like, they had, there were 65 of them around. They're like these high end kind of seafood steakhouse yeah. things. So I worked there. But there's so many of them that when I finished there, I got to transfer to the one in Lake Tahoe. Then I transferred to the one in Santa Barbara. Then I transferred Santa Barbara back down to San Diego. And then I was kind of at a point where like, okay, I'm actually really enjoying this cooking. There was a point when I was 17. It's pretty cool that you were that young being able to transfer locations with yeah. the concept. It was really, I mean, that's allowed me to travel around when I was so young. And then, but I was 17. So my, the manager at the chart house, when I was, cause I was working there while I was still in high school, he would call at, we had a, we had an arrangement. And if he wanted me to come into work early, he would call the school to pretend he was my dad, <laughs> but he had to bring me in an hour and a half earlier than he needed me. So I could go surf out in front of the restaurant. And then hilarious. Yeah. And then then I got, I was, I had moved back to San Diego. I had snowboarded and moved back to San Diego and I was kind of really getting into, I was like, okay, now I'm, I kind of enjoy this. There was one point where this time when I was 17, where they're like, okay, now, now you're 17. You can actually go work on the floor and you want and make way more money than working in the kitchen. So I went out there and that lasted about three weeks. And I was like, this sucks. I don't want to, I hate people. (laughs) (laughs) And so I go back in the kitchen and, and then, then I was 20, maybe 20. And I met uh, a gentleman by the name of Francis Perot. 
he had a restaurant called Fairbanks in San Diego, and he was like born and raised in just outside of Paris. Worked in worked for Robuchon and all these people when he was younger. Came over in like the eighties with the Ritz Carlton was just recruiting like three Michelin star chefs to run their restaurants in the eighties and just bringing them over from France. And he was lucky enough to come as a sous chef with one of the guys that came over to Vegas and then met his wife and somehow ended up in San Diego with the restaurant. And I was lucky enough to go work for him. And that was like the, the game changer. Like he, working for him was like cooking out of La Russe. Like it was really like so super traditional technique, so, so technique based. And you enjoyed that. I enjoyed it. Yeah. That's when I was, that's when I really started cooking and um, not just cooking steaks and right. cedar plank salmon and the <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's and just hearing the stories about him traveling with all these all these different chefs and working all these different countries and it was just really like fascinated me and that's when i started really thinking to myself wow this is like this i love this this yeah. is cool you, you didn't go to culinary school at all did no. you did no. you debate at any time or ask him i did and because i was originally going to come out to New York and try to get into the CIA. And then I saw, I moved to New York, cold turkey. I'd never been here, literally got on a plane, sold my car, sold everything. And he says to me, Matt, I really admire what you're about to do. You're going you're gonna to go to New York. You're going to work hard. You're going you're gonna to learn how to cook, like really cook. And uh, he's like, but you're never going to be rich. He's like, if you want to be rich, you just open a fucking pizza place, man. That's it. and so it just rains rains in my ears. So uh, it's I still hear that conversation as I was leaving. Really? Yeah. I still I still keep in contact with him every time yeah. I go home. We he's we still up. there. Yeah. Well, he doesn't. He's pretty much retired now. But yeah, we always meet up for at least a coffee. That's cool. Back. Yeah. He's such a just like a a good human being and a, not only like a great chef, but like just a great person to talk about life with. He always used to say food is life and life is food. He's like, and there's like, and in saying that you need to find the balance of, I'm still searching for that balance. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so, so you took, so you went to New York. Came to New York. Awesome. I want to hear about all that. So I had five, it was five restaurants, four or five restaurants that I was, these are the restaurants I'm going to work at. Did you, how did you know about them? Uh, radio like, cookbooks. And yeah. I was like, at and that point I wanted, was really, you, you knew you wanted like a, finer dining place. Yeah, okay. I wanted really high end. Like, so first number one place I wanted to work was Gotham Bar and Grill. Alfred Portali, man, that book when it came out back in the day, I was like, this is, I'm going to make my food as high yeah. as possible. <laughs> this shit is so cool. Yeah. And then, so I went there and it was pretty much, they're like, we're not, we're not hiring. So then one was a French pastry chef who also had, a, it was like a restaurant part of it. I can't even remember what it's called now. I went there because Francis actually knew one of the guys there. And they're like, you know, we can't, we can't really hire you right now. Um, we can't hire you for like two or three more weeks, but we want to hire you. And I was like, Man, I just, I cannot not work in New York City for, I don't, just don't have the money to not work for two or three weeks. So then Danielle was on my list and John George and Oriole. And so Oriole was just down the block couple blocks down so I was like fuck it I'm just gonna not I don't have an appointment I'm just gonna walk in and see what happens so I have like my nice pants on my button-up shirt tie I walk in and Chef Palmer and Dante Bacuzzi the CDC were upstairs having a conversation 
and the waiter like brings me up and they both kind of look at me and they're like, what the, what do you want? I was like, I want a job. And I said, okay. Dante's like, what are you doing tonight? I was like, well, I'm nothing. He's like, great. Follow me. He comes downstairs. I was like, he goes, you're in work service tonight. I was like, wow. I like have my dress shoes on and yeah. my slacks on and I don't have any knives. He's like, it's fine. I'll get you a chef coat. You just wear your shoes and your pants. You have arms. There's an apron. You're going to work right in between Brian Voltaggio and Amar Santana. Jesus. And so I start, so no, no, it was Brian Voltaggio and uh, Tony Iazzi. And so I get on the line and service starts and it was, that was like, that was, it was like kitchen confidential shit. Yeah. It was like, that was, so anyway, Dante goes up to me. He goes, it's like 11 o'clock at night. He goes, you know, you can't leave yet because you got to clean, but you got the job. I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I went, uh, so I went home and I had moved out here at that time with a girlfriend from San Diego. And so I was just like in my, I got home at like, I was staying in Bayonne with my cousins. So I got home at like three thirty, four in the morning. She had no idea. Cause I just like, I mean, I didn't have a cell phone back then. It was, she, so she, I get home at like three or four in the morning. She's like, what the fuck? Where the fuck have you been? It's like, I got a job. That's so crazy. Yeah. And then, uh, I'm the first, my, it was my first week. I maybe a second or third day. And I'm it, back then you, we were like prepping in a hallway by the back door on top of potato boxes. Like in the winter, we'd wear our winter coats while we were prepping because the deliveries are coming in and out. And I remember standing there second or third day. And this guy, this guy comes downstairs and he like shouts down the hallway to where the pastry sec- pastry kitchen is down. And this other guy gets out. He's like, fuck. And, and they just start yelling at each other. And then full fledged sprint towards each other, accumulating right in front of my prep box with it. Fist, fist fight. Like right. I was like, Holy shit. <laughs> All right, this is how it's gonna go down. Yeah, this damn. is how it is. Yeah. yeah. It was that that kitchen was awesome, man. It was like how long were you at Oreo? I was there I was there for a year and a half. And then I was went to La Bernadette. You went to La Bernadette. Why yeah. did you leave Oreo? Uh it was I was change pace. Yeah, I was a year and a half in and just wanted to see some I was here to learn and yeah. work at as many restaurants as I could. And then went to La Bernadette. Was a, was little Eric at La Bernadette yeah. when you were there? Yeah. I love that so, guy. I was there. I had some crazy stories about Loretta Dan. Probably some I shouldn't tell. <laughs> but I was there for a few months, and then um, Chef Burke came to me and he goes, oh, "Do you want to like work on my consulting team? I, I see you're kind of moving through the kitchen pretty fast." So it's, and I got this. We're going to start picking up doing consulting and opening restaurants and for people. And I was like, "Yeah, sure." So I spent the majority of my time kind of traveling with Little Eric. Oh, cool. And myself, and then there was two others on the team. And then uh, Chef Repair just opening restaurants in Miami, and we opened a hotel, the Rally Hotel in Miami, yeah. and doing food shows with him out in California. And just like it was, that was a crazy, yeah. crazy, crazy time. That's wild. And yeah. then where from there? Uh, then I went back to Oriole for maybe six months because uh, Charlie had kind of dangled a bit of a dangled. It's like, hey, because I, I knew, he knew I wanted to go to Europe. Let's say if you come back and help us out for a while, I'll I'll get you to Europe. And he's like, and, and I'll really get I'll pay for some of your trip if you sign something saying you'll come back and work for me for three years. And I was like, nah, <laughs> I'm I'm not I'm not 
committing to that. He helped me get into Le Manoir um, in Oxford. So I ended up going there. And then from there, I went to the Fat Duck at the Fat Duck. And then I met Renee when I was at the Fat Duck. And what we had, we had a four bedroom apartment where three of us chef to parties um, had a room. And then the fourth one, we always rented to stagiaires coming through. And this girl, Lena, came through from, from Denmark. This is 2005. And uh, we became really good friends. And she had come from Noma. She was an apprentice at Noma. And then Renee came to eat while she was there. And so that's how I met Renee. And Renee's like, hey, do you want to, uh, you should come check out my restaurant. And then so I went up to Denmark for a week and ended up staying for two years. Wow. Yeah, the first time. And then from there, I went, came back to the city, to New York, and was sous chef at Per Se for three years. And then Renee called me and Is said- Is that where you met Chef Benno? That's where I met Chef Benno, exactly. He, so he was, so he run, was, he was he running was, the kitchen at that yeah, point, right? Yeah. He was the chef de cuisine. Uh, the three years I was there, he was the chef de cuisine for two of the years, and then he had left. And then Eli was the CDC for the last year I was there. So you, you were in Copenhagen, you came back here to Per Se, but then you went back to Copenhagen. When uh, you do these like return trips to places, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, how did Encore. you, go, why, why or how did you go back? So when we, so I moved here with my now wife and my, my, my wife and I have worked together for 14 years, different, different restaurants, but always together yeah. for like a package deal. <laughs> and so I had, we had moved back to New York. We thought, okay, we're moving back there. We're going to do three, five years with Chef Keller and stay there and then probably do our own thing and I'll never <laughs> so they had a very strict policy at that time about uh, intercompany dating at per se and so Yuli and I we were we didn't apply together like it was kind of we just both as actually one of my friends was sous chef there and told Chef Beno this you got to get this guy and then Yuli is a trained like she went to waiter school so in the States, if you can grab someone from Europe that's gone to waiter school, it's like gold. So she got a job right away in the dining room at Per Se. And then, so I, I'm going through the, she got hired before me, because I'm going through this intense process because apparently I was the first person to ever be hired into management outside the company ever. So this is like this kind of trial thing with me, they were testing it out. And, and so I remember I had gone through, all, like I cooked four courses for Thomas Keller as my kind of trial shift in back in the Comey kitchen. Do you remember just what you cooked? I, I remember clear as day. Were you nervous as shit? Or were you I just like doing your thing? I was way more excited about the, oh, cool. the opportunity. I was more excited about this opportunity to like just hang out with Chef Keller for yeah. like four hours yeah. and talk than I was to actually get the job as sous chef. That's so cool. It was so cool. Such an amazing experience. But so I get hired and... I had been there for maybe three or four days and I go up to Chef Beno and I was like, Chef, I just have to, uh, I just have to be honest with you because I just, I really love it here. And, and he goes, he looks at me, he goes, do you think I'm a fucking idiot? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, he goes, cute little Danish girl just happens to start here. <laughs> you just came back from Denmark and you happen to start here. And he's like, I'm not an idiot, man. Just, be cool yeah <laughs> be cool and I'm, yeah we were very very much on the download one one night this guy Kenny Como <clears throat> we used to call him the, the human tornado because he just like spun in circles all night long and uh, he had he had been there for almost a month and a half 
and I was expediting and it was the beginning of service and and Julie comes in, my wife, and, and she just gave me some information on a table and she turns on and walks out and he goes, Chef, damn. It's like, what's up with that Danish girl? <laughs> just she's banging. He's like, what's up with her? I was like, I was, I was like, I'm pretty sure she has a boyfriend. Uh, <laughs> He's like, really? Is uh, who who is he? I was like, I don't know. I'm, I, I think he works for the restaurant industry. And he goes, he goes, where does he work? He goes, he goes, I go, I'm not sure. He goes, hey, it must be a fucking douchebag or something. I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, I think it's pretty cool. I think I've. He, he goes, you sure you don't know where he works? I was like, I'm pretty sure he works at Per Se. And he goes, oh shit, Jeff. Fuck. Oh, oh. And he starts spinning in circles again. <laughs> He's like, just trying to find something to do. That's really funny. Yeah. So, so how long did you spend it per se? Three years. And then, so what was the impetus going back to? Um, two years into that three years, I was just talking to Renee. Okay. And he keeps a strong hold on his strong talent. I see. He, uh, he, and he and I are the exact same age. So we just kind of, we just... We're good. For, we're really good friends, but he just he called he I called him because Yuli and I were talking about moving back, and I called him to say, "Hey, Yuli and I are just kind of playing with the idea of moving back to Copenhagen, and I'm just wondering if there's any sous chef positions around town." Because I, I was as I I told him I was like I don't want to excuse me I don't want to come back to Cop- I don't want to come back to Noma. I've already I've done Noma. Yeah. And he goes, I'll keep my ears open. And then like two weeks later, he calls me. He's like, this is stupid. He's like, why, why are you going to come back anywhere else? He's like, you, he's like, I really, you know, we've, it's pretty full on here. They had just won number one. And uh, he's like, I need, I need to hire my first chef de cuisine. It's like, I can't do it anymore. It's just too crazy. So well, he was like doing it all at that point. Yeah. He was expediting. He was, and we had two sous chefs that were kind of running. So I, so I went to Yuli and Yuli was pretty stoked on New York. Like I had to do oh, really? a little bit of like convincing, but her whole family's from Copenhagen. Okay. So it didn't take that much convincing. Yeah. So yeah, we moved back and I signed on to three years with him. And then at about two and a half years, this opportunity started to show itself a bit. I had already given him my, I gave him a year notice to when I was going to leave. And, um, this particular space, started to kind of show itself where Amasa is now. And I was like, fuck. And I had always planned when I finish at Noma, I'm going to take one year off just to kind of reset yourself. And because yeah. when you work for Renee, you're, you're very much, your job is to think like Renee. Sure. And, and be Renee when he's not there. And, and so I was just kind of, I needed to like just step away from that and like empty my head and, kind of rediscover my own kind of thoughts about food. And it's, inter- it's interesting because you see so many chefs that leave if they work for like Daniel Hom or, or any chef of that caliber. It's hard not to do that food. Yeah. I was, know? It's something I was very conscious of because that's when Noma was starting to get this kind of everyone was doing food that was so influenced by it. And I just, I just, it was a, clear mental effort to not do that it's probably hard it's really hard yeah really hard okay so you leave noma for the second second tour yeah tour yes. duty when i when i talked to i talked to keller 
the first episode of this season and he was talking about, I think Benno did two or three tours yeah. at French Laundry, he said. Yeah. yeah, I said we should get him like a concert t-shirt or something. <laughs> you have a mass and I'm jumping into that. So a lot happens in between, but I'm switching gears a little bit. You say deliciousness yeah. is a driving force behind everything you do. Everything. So I want to know what was the last great bite of food that you had. That we made or or oh, just in general? The last great bite in general and that you made that you were like, oh shit. I'll tell you right now, I had that bite last night. Really? Holy shit. We sat in this dining room. Yeah. Ellie and Ellie. Fucking deep fried grilled cheese sandwich with this anchovy paste on it. Holy shit. I don't remember what it's called, but it was like, yeah. she just started, I was like, what is that? Like anchovy and caper paste and and cheese and She's like, oh, it's like this grilled cheese sandwich, and then we anchovy paste, and damn. Then we batter it and deep fry it, and I was like, what? The <laughs> God, yes, it doesn't it doesn't happen. Like, I feel like you, people are should be lucky to have like bites like that. Yeah, you I, know? I say I I I could really like def. I know when those happen. It's like you know, like you take that bite. Last night, I looked at my wife. I was like, Whoa. yeah, like I feel like I, I've definitely had a handful. But the one of the first ones I remember being like, what the fuck? Yeah, I was at Au Pied de Cochon in uh-huh. Montreal. Yeah. And it was that like cube of liquid foie gras or whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. And I was like, uh, <clears throat> I was with my wife who barely ate things at the time. And uh-huh. I'm like, oh, let's just grab a drink and like a snack or two before we go to another dinner. And I shoved that, like I popped that thing in my mouth and I was like, my eyes like bugged out. She's like, what? I was like, what the fuck is this? Like I freak and I still like years later. Yeah. Like those bites are amazing. Yeah, they are. Do you strive to make, I mean, can you strive to make those bites or? I think you, I think it's a, it has to be in the thought process. Yeah. I mean, it's, if you strive to make those bites every time, you're you because you can't serve if you if you have like an eleven course tasting menu, you can't serve those bites one after another right, because right. they're intense. Yeah, and you're just like, I think it would like mentally you need to be like, okay, now let's eat some salad That's after that, right. <laughs> and then we kind of dip in and out. So if I ask, mm-hmm. uh, uh, have you ever been outright surprised like at a restaurant? Like, is there a specific situation? Uh, let's see. I've definitely, yes. Yeah. So we went to this, this was, it must have been like maybe six or seven years ago. My mom had come over from the States and it was around Christmas time. And that week between Christmas and New Year's, we went down to Nice and I have a friend who lives there. We drove with him uh, over the border into Italy to this place called Dolce Aqua. And this crazy medieval castle is there. We drove around that. We drove out 45 minutes to the countryside to this house. And he's like, yeah, this is, this is where my friends and I usually come if we have all the day off and we just come here and eat lunch. And, and you walk inside and it's like, it's six tables in someone's living room. And I didn't know what was happening. And I was just kind of, my friend Roman, I was just kind of along for the ride. And my mom is just like, shit this is crazy olive orchards and lamb running around and we sit down and to this day that meal is 
the best meal I've ever had in my life. Really? Like it was the ravioli that that lady served was, I've never to this day, I've always, I, I don't know why I do it, but I always order ravioli if I'm at a restaurant because I'm looking for that yeah. experience and yeah. it always falls short. Like it was almost overcooked in a way, but for some reason it was that that was how it was supposed to be. Was it that dish or was, it was like the overall experience? Like, I mean, it? I, you also have to take into consideration the, where you are in that time heightens your senses and your experience. And like, we're drinking limoncello that they make themselves. Right. And like, it was just, but ev- like everything, it was so much food too. And it was, they just kept bringing it. Like we didn't order anything. And it was just that sitting there with my mom and, yeah. and my wife and my friend Roman and we're in this crazy old house overlooking this kind of olive orchard. Yeah. Did you eat ravi- Did you order ravioli all the time before that or since then? You're like, like only since they're like looking for I'm it. Look, I'm, I'm looking I for it. I joke with my brother because he always says like sesame chicken is his favorite like Chinese dish. Uh-huh. And he's ordered it a hundred times and he never likes it. I'm like, have you had a good one? Like you say it's your favorite, but have you had a good one because you keep ordering it or are you just like in search of perfection or maybe do you not like it? as much <laughs> he wants to like it yeah. so he's looking for a good one yeah okay amass sustainability sourcing from local farms regional purveyors bear with me 6500 square foot garden in front of your dining room limiting food waste in the kitchen in 2016 correct me if i'm wrong it was organically certified ensuring at least 90 percent of the food and beverage served are organic and free of pesticides we're sitting at about 98.8 right now really yeah Wow. The only thing that's not organically certified is the stuff that we grow in our own garden because they won't certify it. Interesting. When was the light bulb moment for your commitment to all of those things? So we had been open for six months and it was a whirlwind six months. And we took our first three week winter vacation. And actually this, that winter vacation when I went to Nice, but we had come back and I was talking to a friend and she asked me, she goes, Hey, what do you, what's important to you? Like now mass is open six months and what is, what do you want it to be? And it was a really interesting question because what do you want it to be? I want it to be a restaurant, of course, <laughs> but that there was like all these split second thoughts that happened. Literally all of this happened within like a half of a second where you're like, what is a restaurant? What does it mean to be a responsible restaurant? But what is a restaurant itself is something that's super materialistic that only certain people can afford to experience. So how do you give a restaurant more meaning and have a deeper kind of voice than just people paying money and you serving food and wine and like how do you, what does a restaurant look like if you factor all that into the equation? Had you thought about that before having your own restaurant? No, or, no, you were not just at all. it was it was, I, I mean, when you run someone else's restaurant, like yeah. I was saying before, it's like you are you're in so, their mind. you're in the zone. Like yeah. that's what you're 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 not supposed to look at anything else. You're so zoned in on just executing that. It's really interesting. I wonder how many other chefs actually. I mean, they think this is the food I want to do. The, you know, you want it to be good evolve yeah. ideally but to what point do they 
dive into that. Yeah. Like the I don't think a lot. Yeah. It's not. And, and it's because it's not a thought process that you, that I had ever experienced yeah. before having my own restaurant. But I think the, the big kind of light bulb moment was first of all, that conversation I had, which got my wheels turning. A Were bit. you doing a lot of those things at the time? No, we, we weren't. We, we opened, I mean, we had foie gras on the menu when we opened and we were getting olive oil from Sicily. And like, like it was, I was also very much trying to, from a flavor profile, break away from the, the new Nordic, the N word we all call it, the new Nordic kind of stereotype of those flavors. Got it. Foie gras, olive oil we were using, stuff like that. Lots of black pepper. We still use a lot of black pepper. And so that conversations kind of kickstarted this thought process and we had a week before we were coming back to work so it's all i all i was trying to do in that week was define in my head what is a responsible restaurant a restaurant that takes into consideration the environment products the relationships with farmers being a social kind of community connector um doing social projects, stuff like that, connecting with communities, with schools and stuff like that. What, what does that look like? And when we came back for our first all staff meeting before we started to reopen, I said, okay, everyone, I hope everyone's well rested. I hope, you know, I hope, I hope you guys are proud of yourselves for the last six months and where we're at. And I said, but now forget about all that. This is what we're going to do. And everyone was like, okay, what is that? What does that mean? And I didn't have an, I didn't, I said, I don't have an answer to what this restaurant's going to look like, but I at least have a, a direction that I want us to move in. And as a team, we will figure out what those answers are together. And we need to ask each other questions all the time. We need to challenge why we do things we've done for years. And that started this kind of, this thought process within the restaurant. Was the staff excited? Yeah, I was really, I've been really fortunate over the years at Amass that, you know, the staff, we don't have a, a huge staff. It's like usually six or seven in the front of the house and six and seven in the kitchen. So, and then two in the office. And so I've been really fortunate that everyone who's worked there has really like, really drinks the Kool-Aid. It really Interesting. embraces so, yeah. this way of thinking. So it was a work in progress. It wasn't like, here's the plan on paper. It's it was still like, a work in progress. Yeah. I mean, it's still, we are... I think, so fast forward uh, a couple years, now we're going and we have kind of a, uh, we think we're doing good for the industry, trying all these different ways of running a restaurant and being responsible. We think we're, we're think, we think we're reducing our carbon footprint like crazy. We're, and so then I, I reached out to Anthony Mint, who has zero footprint, and I said, hey, I'm, I think we're ready to get our carbon footprint red for the first time. So we went through this huge process with them, getting our deep dive carbon footprint analysis, all this. And then the report came back and I was like, fuck, we're not doing anything. Like we didn't understand what we were, what we were doing. We thought we were doing a lot. And this, that, this whole practice of actually getting data back about what you're doing, because the, a normal restaurant, a high-end restaurant, <coughs> runs between 19 and 21 kilos of CO2 per guest. When we got our first reading back, it was only at 18. And I was like, what? So we were just kind of finger in the air, what way's the wind blowing? Let's do this. 
which was great because we figured out a lot of things that we probably, if we had like a consulting company or something, we would have never figured out because we were just kind of feeling our way along. But it also, that experience taught me the value of understanding what you're doing. And so we have, so that's 2016. We just had our carbon footprint read for 2018. We got that back in. We're at about 12 now. And we just- get it read every year? Every year. Every year. Yeah. And the, the information you get out of that is, it's so valuable because, I mean, you know the little CO2 cartridges um, that you, everyone uses with whipped cream canisters. And I mean, we used a total of 82 cartridges in a year. That's not a lot. That's, I think we had one dish on for a short amount of time where we used them. Some people use, I don't know, 10, 15 a night. 82 cartridges over a one year period represented 1% of our greenhouse gas emissions. And when you see something like that, you're like, whoa, like that, those aren't things you think have a big impact. But then you just take them out of the equation and all of a sudden you've just, you just gained a kilo of CO2. So all these, so when you understanding what you're doing and that's why we're, I think in the, in the industry itself right now, I'll try not to go on a rant, but in the industry, the restaurant industry, we are at a very crucial tipping point right now because I mean, we don't even use the word sustainability anymore because it doesn't mean anything anymore. It's like people can hashtag it and people, and, and then basically it's a word that people use to greenwash themselves now. So we use the word responsibility or responsible. And it is a, it's become a, we're in a point right now. Like I just went to this, I, we got nominated for most sustainable slash best restaurant in Scandinavia and we won. And so I went up to Stockholm and we got this award and I was really hoping this list was going to be, they're going to hate me when they hear this, but I don't really give a shit. But, and after what I said on stage that I probably won't get invited back anyway, but, (laughs) but it was like, you're, you're promoting a, a list based in people running restaurants the right way. And then your sponsors are Nespresso and Unilever. And you're like, where's the disconnect like where you just yeah i got up on stage when i accepted the award and i was like you see this word sustainability this doesn't mean anything nothing this is actually a tool used to greenwash people and to greenwash lists and to greenwash every and they're not one of the organizers said congratulations afterwards (laughs) but i was i was so pissed off i was like that you just Nespresso and Unilever just used you guys to greenwash themselves because they're part of this sustainability list. And how do you not see that? And I understand you need to get sponsors and stuff like that, but just don't put yourself out there for the first ones that come along and dangle all this money because they have their reasons to do it as well. So, but that was, that was a, like I said, we're just at this weird point in the industry right now where it's cool to be, to work like this now, but it's becoming so cool that it's devaluing the work that the the few restaurants out there that are really pushing towards this are are doing. Like they Doug at Silo in uh, in London now is like he's a maniac, man. He is like militant. Really? I mean, I consider ourselves pretty militant. This guy is like he, Silo in Brighton. Yeah. It's amazing, man. He does every time I've I've cooked him. I invite him up to cook all the time, and I've cooked gone down to Silo to cook a few times and. Every time I leave there, I, I always see at least one thing and I'm like, fuck, we're not doing enough. Yeah, he's, he's awesome. Yeah, and then Christian at Relay and all those guys, they're, they're just, they're, 
it's this extra effort that people are really putting in. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah. You say your garden is more than ingredients. It's the inspiration for dishes to come, making each day a work in progress, which I feel like we've talked about a lot. When was the last time the garden, when was the last time the garden inspired you and what was the outcome? I mean, it was, it was literally the, I think the day before I left, I go, I walk to the garden. If it's not every day, it's at least five times a week. Hmm. And because it is, it is a, first of all, it's a, there's a, something mentally calming about it because it's not really surrounded by anything aside from us on one side. But it is, it is that kind of, there's so much out there that you forget about unless you walk out there and say Max and I are working on a, a new dish and we're kind of looking for the, the activator as we call it. It's almost 99% of the time you just take a walk to the garden and you're like, oh, green fennel seeds or calendula flowers or let's make, let's dry the calendula flowers and put them in a parfait with honey or just, it's just like this, all this could be a beehives out there as well. It's like everything out there is interconnected and you, you can see one thing and it sparks something completely different. So I, I would definitely say that the garden is, it's definitely used. I say we use it more than the guests use it just because it's, for them and we and we the garden is almost 90 percent perennial as well because i went i've become obsessed with soil over the last couple of years and soil health and reading that 30 percent of most greenhouse gases that are emitted to the atmosphere are by tilling of soil and so i came back i went to this kind of soil conference in france and i came back and i was like everything's perennial let's just try it and this last summer, we had a crazy amount of yield come out. Really? Yeah. So we're gonna we're really trying to to go that route. In Interesting. Garden. Yeah. You've crossed paths, as we've heard, with crazy, crazy talented. Not crazy. Well, maybe some crazy. Most chefs, of them are crazy. Uh, <laughs> all over the world. If you're gonna have one chef cook you a meal tonight, who would it be? I would say, hands down, it is the unnamed restaurant in the woods in Hokkaido that does udon and it is like I love I love Hokkaido so a few friends my friend Trevor and I we meet somewhere in the world every year to go snowboarding and year before last we and we met in Hokkaido and a friend of mine she's got a whiskey bar there and we stayed with them for two weeks and we just snowboarded every day we couple days we went backcountry with guides on snow cats and like it was damn it was amazing but at the it was like you drive Hokkaido's amazing because you in Naseko in general you just you turn off a road onto a snow covered back road that has no sign no light you just have to know to turn there and then you just end up at this house with and there's like maybe 10 people inside eating and it's the best udon you've ever had in your entire life oh, everything so crazy and if i could have that that meal again yeah like i know when I, I think next year we're gonna go back to Hokkaido and go snowboarding that is the first place i want to go i love that yeah okay so chef renee Rezepi, he says he's a regular at your restaurant and it's probably his favorite restaurant in copenhagen so when he comes like what goes down like, are you making something special or is work like, is someone walk around being like Chef Renee's coming tonight or, or is it just another night? I mean, it's, of course, 
if he's coming to eat or or any chef for that matter yeah you get excited because these are that's the people you like really like really to cook, like for, to cook yeah. for yeah and so of course it's a big deal in that sense um but i when he eats with his wife nadine fuck they eat fast man she's it's a like, badass cook too huh yeah yeah she is i've made some of her stuff that she posts on instagram oh, really? yeah like nice. like multiple times it's hilarious but they'll eat they'll eat the extended tasting menu it's 11 12 servings in like 45 minutes they like cruise through it oh man they, i mean it's literally myself as soon as the dish watch walks you just start plating you plate the next one that's so interesting because isn't that the opposite of like what noma is no you 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 go through a meal at noma in an hour and a half oh really oh yeah he renee loves that service man he, he loves doesn't the like fast the, oh no no he I loves like that. fast service yeah, I like, like that. boom, 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 boom. Interesting. Yeah, I love to eat that. I, I'm, I'll never forget. I went Peter Kreiner, when I was still at Noma. Peter Kreiner and I had to go to London for a meeting for the when we did the Claire just pop up in 2012. And I remember we were super delayed, and we were supposed to go eat at uh, Nuno Mendez's place, and we were super delayed. And I just kept we had to, and we were going straight from this meeting to lunch, and then going straight to the airport. And we were delayed. We literally had. I think we ate 23 courses in 67 minutes. <laughs> it was like while you were eating, the next course was taking the long way around the diner right. to be dropped. Like it was, it was awesome. Well, so what's your take on that? Is a mass tasting? I, yeah. I think it's a, for, for me, it's a balance. Yeah. Because we're not 27 servings like Noma or we're 11 servings. And so we walk this kind of fine line. If you go too fast at 11 servings, you're done in 40 minutes. Yeah. And then people are like, well, I just came here and spent this money and now I'm walking out of the door in less than an hour. So right. it's finding that balance. And some people want to go fast, but I mean, a big part of this is just reading the guest. That's, a, that's I think, what um, we do really well there. As far as so, you guys know when Chef and his wife, Chef Renee and his wife walk in, you're like, "Shit's right. already plated. Yeah. The whole menu's plated. <laughs> it's like under a heat lamp." Yeah. <laughs> so I found this interesting. Um, speaking of him, he he mentioned a while ago by adding tablecloths, mm. you could get a Michelin star oh, or yeah. two. <laughs> take, take the hip. So it's a pretty raw dining room. There's like big graffiti all over the dining room. Okay. Hip hop playing pretty loud. Yeah, and he's like, Chef. Just add some tablecloths and put some jazz on. He's like two stars, no, no problem. I'm like, shut so, up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, no. um, of course, I'm not going to do that ever, ever, ever. I would rather shut that restaurant than, yeah. than succumb to what someone else thinks we should totally. be doing. Yeah, there was a great. I was reading the review in the, in the New York Times about Benno. And the very last line of that review was because it was a great review. The very last line, because he's talking about how he feels the food is a bit retro, like the dining room. And it's a bit, it's a, it has this very specific moment in time, like 2003, 2004. And uh, he's like, but you know what? That's fine. Because one man cooking for himself is better than 10 chefs cooking for someone else. Yeah. And it's a great line. That's interesting. Yeah. But that's, yeah, I would... And everyone who works there works there because it is what we do. Yeah. And it's like we do high-end tasting menus with dead prez 
blasting in the right. background and graffiti all over the place. Well, so how do you feel about reviews and stars and this and that? I'm I th- curious. I definitely, I, I mean, I definitely, the farther I get into the lifespan of the restaurant and what we're doing and the amount of energy we're spending on these different projects we're doing and just to, just making the restaurant just more meaningful, it, it's nice because all that takes my focus away from all of that. And like, I don't really, it's not a driving force for us Yeah, in any way. For your, your, do your cooks, do you think they care what they're more no, focused on the they're, restaurant? They're focused on the restaurant. And that's yeah. what, again, why I'm so lucky to have the people that I do because they are, Yeah, they really understand the importance that's of cool. things. Yeah. I have a lot of friends that write and I, fucking can't stand lists and God. stars and Just all that so, shit. It doesn't, it, the thing, it doesn't mean anything. No. It's like white noise. Yeah. Like and, I miss, I miss Jonathan Gold in yeah. LA hugely because he's a great, he's an incredible writer and I read a lot of writers now. I don't read a ton because <clears throat> it's their point of view on a restaurant. Yeah. Like it's going to be different than my point of view. Keller had an interesting um, Chef Keller had an interesting point of view too. He was like, "Well, it depends who, like, obviously what they wrote, who wrote it. Do uh-huh. I trust that writer?" Yeah. He's like, "If I, you know, if I have a rapport with them and trust their writing or their palate, he's like, I almost trust my regulars that come in all the time and know our food. Uh-huh. If they tell me something salty or off or something yeah. like that, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Broaden and build. Yes. Interesting concept. I love yeah. it." Um, you said we're definitely going to fail along the way, but failure is part of the process. We have to fail to evolve. If we want it to be safe and not evolve, we just brew safe beers with ingredients that we know would work. But that's not what this project is about. So t- first, I'm curious, just tell us about that concept. Tell us about that concept first. Okay. So this, I think I've probably been working on this project for like, the I would say three to four years. And... I grew up in San Diego, so I grew up in the craft beer explosion in like Ballast Point. Ballast Point. I mean, yeah. was Ballast Point sold for? Was it Ballast Point? No. Who who just? No, it was Ballast Point? Did they sell? They sold for one. I want to get this. Is it Ballast Point or Green Flash? There's good beer out there. Anyway, one of those kind of bigger craft breweries. They sold. For one billion dollars, it's insane. Billion, yeah. it's crazy. And I, I had been gone for a few years, and I'll never forget. I mean, Green Flash was like a that was a small brewery when I left, very small. And I remember being back a few years ago and getting off the freeway and slowing down, and on the freeway, this massive like big rig green flash along the sides. I was like, holy shit. But it's, so I grew up in that explosion. I've always been way more into beer than wine. Got it. I just think it's really interesting, and especially with how people are looking at ingredients now. And so. I have a random question. Fire. I'm cutting you off. Did you, do you know Jared Rubin? Was he a Per Se by any chance? I feel like he worked at Per Se briefly in New York, but he has a brewery out of Chicago called Moody Tongue. And he was a chef by trade, but. Go on. I was yeah, curious. I'm, I hope he's not listening because I can't remember. No, it's a, <laughs> he's probably not. My mom is the only listener. Just <laughs> right, so stop dropping f bombs. Just go with it. Um, yeah. So I I was just really interested in 
what happens when you start adding the kind of the the knowledge of ingredients and the creative process of a chef into that equation because it hasn't as far as I can see and I've done a lot of, it hasn't really happened like aggressively and there's a lot of breweries out there that oh we're run by chefs and uh, but I I think we just went all in I mean every like lemon skin miso gozas and koji saisons and and um, like the the way we a lot of our because I have a a pretty firm background um, in fermentations. So what do you, what happens when to extract flavor, you do primary fermentations on your ingredients and then use that in the beer afterwards. So lactic fermenting rhubarb and then taking that and using the lactic bacteria in the salt you fermented it with to brew a goza because you need lactic bacteria and salt. Those are kind of what defines a goza. And so really starting to understand fermentations not just from a, a a beer brewing process with yeasts and but using all the fermentation processes that i've used in the past in cooking to extract flavor and add it to the beer and it's been really interesting because obviously the more you understand the brewing process as well it starts to affect how we cook in the restaurants as well like we uh bretomyces is a it's a farmhouse yeast that really creates these barnyardy flavors and so we took and they just need sugar that's what they need to eat um so we just took carrot juice reduced it to 26 bricks added bretomyces to it nothing happened for seven days we're all looking at it going what is how is this not but it it just the sugar was so concentrated it took a time for it to kind of pick back up on the eighth day it tasted with no reference to carrot at all like mango 100% 100% like a mango. Like you, you, it tasted, there was no carrot flavor at all. And then on the 11th day, it tastes like shit. So there's like this four day window where we created this mango flavor. So now the next step is to, now we need to find an enzyme that we could insert into that process to stop, to freeze that four day kind of window in time. So then imagine because we're a pretty ingredient focused brewery and like we don't really, we don't get in pineapple and coconut and stuff, shit like that. So, but imagine if we could take carrots and make them taste like mango and then brew like a, a Nordic mango sour or something. So really understanding that and brewers are into it, man. When you start talking to brewers about this stuff, they're just like. So there's a lot of failures. Oh man, there's so many failures. That's so crazy. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. I was going to ask about one of your biggest failures. That's, I wouldn't say that carrot mango thing is like a biggest failure, but do you have a biggest failure that pops in your mind? Blueberry double IPA. <laughs> in theory, we were, in theory, we were really going for something that seemed like it was going to be amazing. Like we were, so Centennial Hops has these really like piney, resiny flavors to it. And blueberry and pine is like a pretty, we would say classic Nordic dessert flavor combination. And so we were like, yeah, let's brew, let's brew this blueberry double IPA and then use centennial hops for this piney kind of flavor in it. So we work with a juice company. So we order all the, the fruit in ourselves and then we work with a juice company and they'll juice it for us because all the stuff comes from the farms, same farms we use at a mass. So we get these blueberries in, they juice them and they always give 
the pressings to us afterwards. So we have the juice and the pressings. So we added the pressings, uh, all the skins and everything into the, the louder ton white spun. And then we added the juice on the, the cold side. Well, and then Centennial hops in the end wasn't the best choice of hops to use on this. And it tasted like, it tasted like savory. It was so salty almost. It was a weird, it was absolutely terrible. It also happened to be the most expensive beer we ever brewed. It was like wild blueberries are just ridiculous expensive. So yeah, Susie, our operations manager, she was like, what's this line? You guys are idiots. (laughs) Do you have repeat beers that stay, for lack of a better term, on the tap, if you were? Are they always Uh, For the most part, they're evolving. We're actually trying to, so we've done this completely backwards. Most breweries, when they start, they define their core beers. Right. Six, seven beers. In nine months, we've brewed 67 different beers. Trying to, I think for us, because we're doing something so outside the box, trying to understand what we're doing and what gets us excited. But, I mean, you have to also understand what the market wants to buy. Right. Because this, it's a production. I mean, we brew a 1,000 liters at a time. So, Are you, are you will, would you, do you, like, sell it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely, yeah. I mean, we... We distribute in Copenhagen. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, UK, Italy, France, Norway. Oh, shit. Yeah. Fuck. All right. Sorry. So, Holland. Yeah. So, Very it's, cool. yeah, we're distributing. Okay. Um, Amazing. So, yeah, it's, so now we are actually going through the thought process of going through those 67 beers and saying, okay, what do we want to define us? We need some, we need some beers that the market likes. We also need some weird beers that kind of what we like to do. Got so it. We're finding that balance. Yeah. It's interesting. All right. Social impact. Yes. Giving back. Yes. So one of the things I love about this podcast and and one of the main reasons why I did it, do it is because I've been around this industry for a long time and I am fortunate enough to travel a lot with work. And whenever I eat at a restaurant or meet a chef, I know how much they do beyond a plate that you eat. And I know how giving everyone is i mean you talk about social impact we've talked about i'm using the word sustainability we've talked about you know things like that what did you call it accountability responsibility responsibility that was it so i'd say that's a huge commitment if you will but all chefs give back in their own way you know and we just chatted with danny meyer recently and he's like we have the ability to do so much more beyond the four walls of our restaurant why don't we serve more people, you know? And you've even said chefs have such a voice now for a restaurant to mean something, you have to use your power. You do a lot from what I've came across. Local soup kitchens, classes for children in your garden with the Amass Green Kids program. Just, I want to hear about all so that. We've, we, in the past, we've done a lot, or we did a lot with doing kind of fundraisers for soup kitchens and then when you go to a soup kitchen, you cook in a soup kitchen, you, you realize really quickly that the people that work there are amazing, but they have no idea what they're doing. And then how, so how do you, how do you put a restaurant in that setting from organization to just being able to process one ton of carrots when they're donated? Like what do you, even a ton of carrots to me is daunting setting up the space. So it's more efficient. So Jackie, um, who's worked with me since day one, she 
was it two years ago? She's, she's been on maternity leave because she just had a baby, but she was working, um, with a soup kitchen called grace. So I basically, we basically inserted her into this soup kitchen and she just took over the operations and it was, it was amazing to see it evolve. Um, and to see her evolve because she really she loves these social projects that's what she loves to she's a chef and so that was great she's been on maternity leave grace is trying to relocate we're trying to get money from blue cross to help build a new space so that's in the works right now and then we have something called the green kids which is we bring two to three classes a year and they come first in may and we bring them to the garden they get their own beds they plant all the seeds and then in June, they come back. We teach them about the greenhouse, about composting and worms, and they pick the weeds out. And, and then skip July, and then in August, we bring them back. They harvest everything they've grown. We bring them in the kitchen, and we cook lunch with that, and then we invite their families out. So they get to serve their families the food they've grown and cooked, and there's a big lunch with their families. And yeah. That's, that's a crazy, that one. What made you want to do that for like a younger generation? think you know when i when i there's like the obvious reason of kind of making these kids aware because they come from inner city and making these kids aware of where their food comes from but i didn't realize the importance of it until the first session that we had with them and we were harvesting and i was i picked some peas off and i opened them up and i went to put them in this kid's hand he goes what are those and i was like these are peas and he goes peas i was like yeah and he's like "I, i didn't He's like, I've only ever seen them in the freezer. He's like, I never, he didn't know what a pea plant looked like. And I was like, wow, this is important. So that, that's, that's kind of, and the first year we got funding from the city to do it. And then it's really weird. You couldn't get that same funding again. And then the next funding is like millions of Krona, which we don't need that to do it. And so we've funded it ourselves. We just, we pay for it ourselves every year. Do you partner with like an organization? Like how do you find, how do you get the kids and all that? Um, we just reach out to the schools okay, and say, Hey, this is what we're offering. The first three classes to sign up, get it. And it's like a summertime. Yeah, but they're not in school in Denmark. There's no summer break. Like there's the kids, there's not a time where kids don't go to school. So they coming out after school or something? No, it's part of the school. It's part of the school. Yeah. Day. Amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so there's this food bank side. There's the uh, a mass green kids garden side. I want back to the food bank. I'm curious. Do you, I feel like you you almost have voluntarily done this. Yeah, it was completely voluntary. Do you, do you all feel like ownership of it now? Or yeah, I mean, we're not the only chef in the world that's yeah. doing this, or the only restaurant. I think there's ownership. Uh, maybe that's uh, sorry. Uh, responsibility to it. Oh yeah, definitely. Okay, definitely. Because, like I said, that first time being in a in a soup kitchen and, and do it, we did a pop up to raise money for the soup kitchen, and it was just it was just crazy how just seeing how the setup was, and you could clearly tell that the people operating the kitchen had no experience with food or organizing themselves and how the ingredients came in and processed, and and so one. I think the main reason why I wanted to get inside, get involved is that, so you have, you have food that is say rescued from the food bank. So if say like this is the food, it would, it's a straight line to 
in Denmark, they burn everything. They don't have landfills. They just burn everything. So it's a straight line for that food to the incinerator. So then the food bank intercepts that food. So then it's transferred from here to here. So that's a truck driving and a person in the truck. Then it's at the food bank. Then it's intercepted from the food bank to a, say a shelter, a soup kitchen. So then it's transported again to that soup kitchen. Then because of the lack of experience, definitely not the lack of heart or wanting to just straight lack of experience, half of that food is thrown out because they don't know how to process it. So then it goes back to the incinerator. So you've just made the entire straight line more inefficient. And now you're just wasting resources, moving stuff around to end up at the same place. So how do you, how do you make that process more efficient? And so it just goes to there and that's it. And it doesn't go any further. And that was kind of the, the basis for really wanting to get involved in this, just seeing that there was just... How do, and then by saving those resources, how do we then do we we save money by not having two different trucks drive stuff around? So then can we buy more freezers and better facilities for these soup kitchens? And Denmark's a hard one because everyone is so taken care of in that country that when you when you really like put yourself out there to be a a soup kitchen and there's like, sometimes the government is just ridiculous. Like, okay, you can't, if the police show up at your soup kitchen and there's people there without yellow cards or CVR cards, which is your more or less like your social security, they'll shut you down. And then you think to yourself, if you have one of these cards, you have all the social benefits of the government. If you're unemployed, you get paid. If you're, it's, and so because we ran an international soup kitchen. So we, we just like, because there's so many people coming into the country that just don't have a place to start and they're sleeping on the streets and they don't. And so that, that's the kind of soup kitchen that we ran. And there was a point that went out that the, the government said, we're going to be doing raids on soup kitchens. And if anybody is there without CVR cards, then we're going to shut you down. That's crazy. What's the school food situation like out there? The school food situation is actually pretty good. Is it? Yeah, I mean... Denmark is now, as a country, has the same certification as a mass does within the school system. So 90 to 100% organic. Jesus. Yeah. That was a, that was a, big, a big push. My daughter's school, they serve 100% organic. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's wild. So, yeah, that's, they're, they're pretty progressive in that sense. That's great. Speed round. Fire. What did you have for dinner last night? I sat in this dining room eating deep fried grilled cheese sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. uh, name a smell in the kitchen you love. Um, I love the smell of charred kale. Hmm. Back to that. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Um, I hate when you ferment cabbage or radish. No, let me be very specific. I hate when you ferment radishes. And then you open that bag up in the kitchen. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um, what pisses you off in the kitchen? Opening uh, a bag of fermented <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing that pisses me off the most that really gets me going is when someone does something that they do all the time and then they, just one time they don't do it correct. 
and they know how to do it. And then you just, you just don't do it like you know how to do it. And then you just kind of try to let it go. And you're like, what is that laziness or something? I don't, you know, I, I, that's a whole psyche question. (laughs) Like how can you know that it's wrong and, and you know how to do it, but you, you do it anyway. And what makes you happy in the kitchen? I, I, I would definitely say when a Saturday night, when it's just like services just zinging and everyone's kind of in tune and, and it's just, there's those nights where, cause we have a very open kitchen. Okay. Um, and so the, the vibe of the dining room and the vibe of the kitchen, they very much intertwine. And there's, there's times where you'll be just a really good service. Then you'll walk in cause the chefs serve a lot of the food at a mass as well. So you go into the dining room and you're, you're walking back through the dining room and there's like hieroglyphics is just bumping in the dining room and people are having a great time and you it's fun man yeah, it's I gotta it's, get out there yeah it's a it's a fun it's a fun space can we go back to charred kale yes talk to me Dude, i'll eat the shit out of charred <laughs> kale man <laughs> what do you do like what do you how, what's happening whole leaves or stripping them and break them down a little bit yeah and then like smoking hot oil put it in don't move it. Yeah. Let it char on one side. Like a pile of it? Or you no, you, f- you flatten it out. You, okay. Let it char on one side heavily. And then you just give it a toss so that hot oil cooks the rest of it. Lemon juice, salt, done. Is this blanched first or anything? No, or, no raw. raw. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Raw. All right. That's, I mean, we, when I cook at home, I use it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. It's amazing. And okay. I never get sick of it either. Sounds I'm going to be doing that. Okay, so closing, in 10 years, what exciting things would you like to see happen in restaurants? Well, we are, first I'll say what I would like to see happen at, in our sure. sphere. Yeah. Um, and then I'll say in general, because it'll tie into it. Right now we have a, we had the opportunity when we built the brewery, because it's in a massive warehouse, to build a research kitchen. And this is something that I'm really excited about right now because um, Kim, who is head of my R&D, he, he and I and Max, who's my head chef, have been doing all these like small projects on the side in the kitchen at a mass while you're butchering a piece of fish. You got a little pot, like a little witch's brew going on on the side, try, testing something out. And we've come up with a lot of really cool techniques and processes to to process all of our byproducts into stuff that's delicious. Like we can turn kale stems into something that tastes exactly like nori seaweed. Uh, We can take nut pulps and turn them into ricotta cheeses and all these different things. And, but we got to the point where we really, if we really want to understand these processes and be able to kind of share them with people, we needed a, a space to do this, that we weren't distracted by getting ready for service. And, just to make it very clear, this is not a space where dishes are come dishes are created. That all happens in the kitchen at a mass. I'm a very firm believer that dishes should be created in the environment in which they're served. So this is a space just for processes and techniques and to document it so we can understand it. We work with um, local universities and their science labs and stuff like that. And we when we opened this space, we really thought that it was going to be a space where we took all the byproducts from both restaurants, because there's a restaurant at the brewery as well, 
And then we processed them and then it was given back to the restaurants to use. But what we're seeing now is a massive opportunity to have an impact on large food industry. We just did a project with a bread company, uh, quite a large scale industrial bread company out of Copenhagen. And they came to us, they said, we don't know what we can do together. We just love what you guys do in your thought process. And we just, we just want to do something together. What we don't know what it is. Let's have a coffee and talk about it. So we had all these different processed, like things we like kale stems into seaweed powder and tomato skins into tomato powder with other stuff mixed in. And they're like, yeah, let's, let's mix this through the bread and we'll win and we'll bake it and we'll see how the flavor it was it was nice one of the breads we did for the dinner was this kind of salted we fermented kale stems and cabbage leaves in yogurt whey and then made this powder and then we baked the bread with it for the dinner the last night or night before so that bread they showed up with the bread and it was nice it tasted great but i was like you don't fuck with danish people's bread don't put shit in it people are gonna it's gonna be an up a riot so then we took the bread we toasted it. It's like they is like two hundred loaves of bread a day they were throwing away because they're the wrong shape to fit into the packaging. Yeah. So they dropped the as I dropped the bread off, we'll mess around with it. So what we ended up doing is roasting it, drying it, covering it with water, and then basically putting it in the oven like we're brewing a making a wort, like when you brew beer. And we were able to extract seventeen percent sugar from the old bread. We reduced that liquid down and then made ice cream out of it. Cool. And they went nuts. So now we're, they went to Irma, which is like, I would say the Whole Foods equivalent of what we have in Denmark. Yeah. And Irma, the CEO went crazy. They want to carry it in the stores. The ice cream. The ice cream, this bread ice cream. So now we're in the whole process of how do we get it from here to there now. So, but that, that process there made Kim and I really realize that, wow, we can, I think what's going to happen with this space is that we're actually going to be able to go into large industry, identify waste streams, and then turn those into things that could be delicious. I had, I was, the last three weeks especially have been exciting. We've been approached by LinkedIn to help with their food um, operations and identifying how they could just run more efficiently. We've been approached by, uh, I started, I had dinner with Yvonne, the owner of Patagonia, because he was super interested in what we were doing. And then my friend Chad, who's the head of R&D for Chipotle, um, he and I are talking as well about, because one day he says to me, I know at one o'clock every day on the East Coast, one million avocado seeds are produced. And I was like, fuck, avocado oil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now he's putting together a list of things that he wants us to look at. And so now, wait, did you say waste streams? Is that what word, phrase you used? Yeah. yeah, I like that. Yeah. So it's fun. Kim has the best one-liners. <laughs> he said, he's like, food is not, food is not, or these things are not waste. It's food wasted. And uh, so that's kind of what we're looking at now with these large industrial producers. And they need some, I mean, they have a, there are machines that just, they need someone to step in and be like, whoa, look at this. We can actually take this process and you can sell it again and make money. Yeah. 
I feel like there's a, a commonality here. Like I talk, when we talked to Dan, Juicy for the podcast, in the work he's doing in schools now and stuff you're talking about, I, I, I'm, I see this commonality of word efficiency. Yeah. Is that something you both picked up at No More? Is that just a, I you think, think a chef thing? I, I, think, I think it's kind of a chef thing. One of the biggest kind of tasks you have as the head chef at Noma is to make everything as efficient as, as possible. I think in general, as a chef, your goal should be every day to look at what you do and make it more efficient. Well, fuck. This was fun. I knew what I was in for and didn't. And my mind is spinning because I work in this giving back, social impact, food waste, uh, you know, using that buzz term space, you know, with my day job. Thank you. You're welcome. For taking the time of to course. sit down. Thank you for everything you're doing. I'm, I know there's a handful of chefs that listen to these podcasts, and I know they're going to be very inspiring to them. There's people in and out of the food world that listen to this, but I think it's going to make a lot of people think about efficiency in their own life or yeah. business yeah. and their restaurant. There's one thing to have a good restaurant with great food that is a well-oiled machine and runs well and the you know, floor is humming and the kitchen's humming. But beyond that, it's like you're saying, it's what do you stand for yeah. in a way? How do you give yourself meaning? Yeah. Substance. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So thank you again. Thank you for, I've never been to Copenhagen, but for the stories you share of what you're doing in the garden with kids, in the, in the you know, soup kitchens, that's, you know, that could happen It there's possibility for that to happen anyway. Oh yes, yeah, so. definitely. Definitely. Thanks again, man. You're welcome. Appreciate Thanks, it. man. Yeah. Here's a quote on a friend asking Matt Orlando what's important to him now that a mass had been open for six months. He came back from a few week vacation with his staff and he said to them, quote, I don't have an answer to what this restaurant is going to look like, but I at least have a direction that I want us to move in. And as a team, we'll figure out what those answers are together. And we need to ask each other questions all the time. We need to challenge why we do things we've done for years. And that started this thought process within the restaurant. Super big thanks again to Chef Matt Orlando. Find more on him at amassrestaurant.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on Twitter at BT Play Podcast and Facebook. This episode is produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joe Yeaton, and Sean Petrosian. Big thank you to Tom Osborne. Our music is composed by Goldford. As always, special shout to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Join us next week for Just a Plate when Chef Matt Orlando shares a dish him and his wife make, oh, about once a week at home. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen. <laughs>